Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue our series from the book of Revelation entitled, From Creation to Creation. So let's join Dr. Neufeld as we open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, for today's teaching called, Grasping the Message of Revelation. I want you to imagine taking a long, strenuous hike through that wooded area. I wonder if you've ever asked yourself, where am I? Now, if you have a map or a GPS, you can soon locate yourself. You you might look at the trees or a creek running through an area or maybe an escarpment and be genuinely interested in what you see, being ever mindful of where these things fit into the overall area of where you're hiking. Knowing where you are gives perspective, helps you understand. In essence, this is a very good analogy for the book of Revelation. Understanding the whole makes the meaning of the individual parts apparent. That's because, as everyone who has ever read Revelation knows, the book is filled with images. You know, as an example, Revelation 12, 1 to 6 describes a woman. She's clothed with the sun. The moon is under her feet. She's about to give birth. And a great red dragon with seven heads is about to devour her child the minute that child is born. Does that sound horrible to you? But what does it mean? And what do we make of such an image? And how are we to interpret that? What reality does that point to? Now, we know we can't take that literally. And and since it's symbolic or a figure, what reality are we to observe? The answer has everything to do with what the forest looks like. Following the flow of thought which makes up the entire book helps us to locate the place in the book in which the image occurs. And once we see where the book is going, we will immediately discount all the fantastic and unrealistic explanations of that image. We will interpret the image within the framework of the entire book. And so fundamental to understanding Revelation is to stand apart from trying to understand all the details and get a sense of the structure of the whole book. But there's another item that stands at the outset of our understanding of the whole book or or viewing the forest before examining the individual trees. And that item has to do with the theme of Revelation. What is the book all about? What is the central thing this book is trying to communicate? And for our convenience, and because this book requires some work to understand, John has told us in the very first sentence of the book, Revelation 1 verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And so the book has something to do with the future. Ah, But it's right here that we need to put on our thinking caps. Clearly, what's at stake is our understanding of the word soon. You know, there are those who argue that the use of the word soon must be understood in the context of the Christians in the seven churches to whom this book was written. Soon, they say, must mean soon to them. So they're going to argue that a great portion of the book of Revelation was, in fact, fulfilled within the lifetime of those people who first read the book. Of course, they agree that the second coming of Jesus didn't occur in their lifetime, but they argue that the images in the middle of the book should be interpreted in the light of the events that happened to those churches. So we will in our day have to learn all we can about those churches and their place in history. 
but others who view the majority of the book as taking place within what they call the Great Tribulation view the word soon in a very different way. They argue that soon refers to a distant future, not an immediate one. For those who hold to a distant future, well, they love to import 2 Peter 3 verse 8 and inject it here. There Peter said, But do not overlook this one fact, my beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And so since it has now been over 1,900 years since this book was written, we are told that notwithstanding that long period of time, the word soon still applies. It means soon from the eternal perspective of God and not from the limited perspective of the Christians who received this book in the first place. You see how everything we read from verse 1 on depends on how you see that one word, soon. Are the images in the middle of the book graphic depictions of the spiritual warfare that believers faced in the early church, and then, of course, by extension, in some fashion, a warfare that we all face as we await the second coming of Jesus, or is the middle of the book a depiction of the great tribulation at the end of time? See, what's fascinating to me is that most people who are hearing me have already made up their mind on that issue, but here a bit of honesty is probably necessary. Never does the book explicitly say whether soon means soon from the first century believer's perspective or from the eternal divine perspective. See, what I wish to do is engender respect for both positions and have no fear, I'm going to reveal my viewpoint of the word soon before this broadcast is over. Now, from one perspective, the second, the the long-term use of the word soon seems favorable. I mean, after all, by the time we get to Revelation 19, verse 11 and following, we read that I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And, And what follows, we have a clear picture of what appears to be the second coming of Jesus. And then by the time we come to Revelation 21, we have the description of the new heavens and the new earth. So if this is included in John's use of soon, it must be that the term is used, shall we say, in an indeterminate way, that is, from God's perspective and not from ours. But as we read through Revelation, we're also going to see that some of the things that are described are indeed soon from a human perspective. In Revelation 2 verse 10, the church in Smyrna is told, do not fear what you're about to suffer, and suffer they did. And then, as we continue to read about the beast and about the false prophet, what, after all, would the believers in the first century have thought of, if not Rome and the emperor Domitian and his demand that all should worship him as Lord? See, truly, in every way, the images of this book would have made all the sense in the world to the experiences of those first century believers. What is depicted in this book is clearly what they would soon experience as they awaited the heavens to open and the rider on the white horse to appear. So let me try to clarify the debate. See, in short, what some of us see differently is what we are to make of Revelation chapters 4 to 19. Are those specific chapters soon from God's perspective or from ours? See, almost everyone agrees that chapters 1 to 3 speaks to the situation felt by the seven churches 2,000 years ago. And almost everyone agrees that chapters 20 to 22 refers to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ 
and the end of the age, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. But that still leaves us with trying to understand the bulk of the book in chapters 4 to 19, 15 chapters that often genuinely perplex us. To some, those 15 chapters must speak to the events that will occur in the last great tribulation, seven years prior to the second coming of Jesus. Now, people in this camp will often appeal to the second half of the book of Daniel and say that Revelation chapter 4 to chapter 19 refers to events that take place during what is described in Daniel 9 verse 27. There it says, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for a half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. From Daniel's last week that he predicts will come before the end of time. Many understand that the images of Revelation 4 to 19 belong to that seven-year period. They simply assume that Revelation chapters 4 to 19 happened during the Great Tribulation, and many have never even considered that not everyone reads the book in the same way. Now, now to be sure, the book of Revelation never says that chapters 4 to 19 refers to the distant future or to the last Great Tribulation. See, the book of Revelation in chapter 7, verse 14, does use the phrase, the great tribulation. But even there, we're left to ask, what is John referring to? Is the great tribulation the suffering of the seven churches in their battle against the unseen forces of evil in the heavenly realms, and for that matter, the suffering of all the churches throughout all the ages as we struggle to remain faithful awaiting the second coming of Jesus? After all, Christians have faced horrible persecution in the past. Or is this referring to the seventh week in Daniel? Again, Revelation does not answer the question. And sometimes I have a sneaking feeling that we're trying to bring our agenda into the book rather than allowing the book to speak to us. So it's time for me to tell you what I think. I think that both sides are both right and wrong. From my perspective, Revelation is to be applied to the seven churches, and it is to be applied to all the experience of all the churches at all time. But it also refers to the time of the end, a time in the future which many have called Satan's little season. Well, there's so much more to say. One of our listeners wrote to say, This message captures the heart of our awesome God. Thank you so much for this truth, Pastor John. I love the passion you display in expounding God's Word with truth and humility. Feedback like this lets us know that the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are hitting the mark. With God's blessing, people of every age and background are being impacted through faithful Bible teaching and engagement using every effective medium at our disposal. Our special thanks to all those who listen, watch, read, and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement and commitment to Bible teaching is essential. Please continue to stand with us with your prayers and support. You can join us in this effort with your financial gift by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let's outline the book of Revelation and then return to our question about exactly what this book is talking about. Now, as you are by now surely aware, I have suggested that we can neatly outline the book into three categories. 
chapters 1 to 3, in which we have Jesus revealing himself in all his glory and then giving a message to the seven churches. And then secondly, we have chapters 4 to 19, in which we start with the throne room of heaven and end with the destruction of Babylon the Great. And then thirdly, we have chapters 20 to 22, in which Jesus returns, and we finally end with the new heavens and the new earth and the consummation of all things. I might put this another way. Section 1, the glorified Jesus speaks to the churches. Section 2, the depiction of the unstoppable greatness of God and his sovereign plan to fill the earth with his glory, seen in the context of a great cosmic spiritual warfare, more horrible than any earthly war that has ever been waged. And then section three, we find depicted the final victory of the Lamb, and the truth that the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God. And that is what Revelation is all about. That's the forest. That's the grand perspective. But with that, we're emboldened to dig a little more deeply and get a more detailed description of the terrain. After all, most of us who have seen maps know the difference between what may be seen in a shot from a satellite in space and a more detailed map taking into account what is actually happening on the ground. So let's do a more detailed study of the terrain of the book of Revelation. Let's start with chapters 1 to 3. As the book opens up, John encounters Christ in all his glory, and he's portrayed in very symbolic language to showcase his infinite greatness. A clear case is made here for the deity of Christ. But one of the depictions that John gives of Jesus is that his eyes are like a flame of fire, indicating that he searches out and sees all things. Furthermore, he's walking in the midst of the seven lampstands, which is a depiction of the seven churches. Here we have a clear teaching that the full attention of Jesus is given to the health and the vitality and the holiness of his church. The church has Christ's full attention. And with that, Jesus has a message for each church. It begins with a word of commendation, then a word of rebuke, then instructions on what they must do to correct their disobedience, and finally, both the consequences that would come if they disobey him and the promises that are theirs if they submit to him. Two of the seven churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, received no criticism at all. See, that's possible for a local church. And one, the church in Laodicea receives no praise. That's also possible for a local church. But we read these verses against a background of the storms of persecution that are rising that threatens to undo these churches. As Jesus tells the church in Smyrna, recorded in Revelation 2 verse 10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And with that, we come to the large section of the book from chapters 4 to 19. These chapters open with John seeing a door standing open in heaven and hearing a voice saying, Come up here. And at once he's brought before the throne room in heaven. And here we can imagine what this would have meant to the seven churches hearing this letter being read. Many of their fears were directed at the throne room of Rome and the imperial might that flowed from the emperor's palace. But here's a dazzling room, a throne room, in which the depiction of the splendor of the Almighty God is dazzling and powerful. All the host of heaven worship the one who is on the throne. Do not fear, O powerless church. Your God sits on his throne, and no power can stop him. We might be reminded here of Jesus' words at Luke 12, 4 and 5. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. 
But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, after the throne room scene, we come to chapters 5 to 8. This scene extends from the throne room to the actions of God in history. It's intended to tell the church on earth that the ultimate throne determining the destiny of earth is in heaven. And so the scene begins by depicting God on his throne, and in his hand is a scroll sealed with seven seals. And as we continue to read, it seems clear that the scroll represents God's redemptive plan for the conclusion of history, for the overthrow of evil, and for the gathering in of his redeemed. And so the breaking of the seals represents the onset of the plans of God. And then a cry goes out in heaven. Who is worthy to break the seals that bind up the scroll and enact the Father's purposes on the earth? And then we're told the only one who is worthy is one who is both the lamb that was slain and the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's Jesus, the Christ, who both died for our sins and is destined to rule the nations. And then follows the breaking of the seven seals. As the first six are broken, wars and conquests follow and the trembling of the earth. But because we know that this is God's scroll, the church need not fear, for God is in control. And then before the seventh seal is broken comes a vision of the 144,000 and a great multitude around them, suggesting that God will bring in all his people safely before his throne through all the trials that they face. Do not fear, O church, your God reigns. And then to our surprise, the last seal of the scroll is broken, and, and rather than seeing famine or martyrdom or earthquakes, all that happens here is silence in heaven for about a half an hour. So what does that mean? And the question has led to two different answers. One answer is that the scroll and the breaking of the seven seals suggest that this is now the end of the world and the second coming of Christ. Now, if you take that perspective, what follows, which will include, of course, the blowing of the seven trumpets and, and the pouring out of the seven bowls of God's wrath, well, they are merely different sets of visions depicting the same phenomena. That is, from that perspective, the book of Revelation does not present us with a chronological ordering of what's to come, but rather multiple spiritual visions of the same thing, of what the troubling of the earth represents. Now, from my perspective, it seems that the breaking of the seventh seal needs content. Something needs to happen. The silence in heaven is as if everyone in heaven now stands to their feet in awe of what is going to happen next. And what does happen next is seen in chapter 8, verse 6, to the end of chapter 11. The seventh seal brings forth seven angels who step forward, each of them with a trumpet in hand, and prepare themselves to blow the trumpet. Again, that's my perspective, but from my perspective, the trumpets represent the end of the age so that with the breaking of the seventh seal, we open up to the time of the end. And so Revelation presents us with first seven trumpets, then in chapters 12 to 14 with seven significant visions that demonstrate the great struggle in a spiritual warfare, and finally in chapters 15 and 16, the depiction of seven angels holding seven bowls filled with the judgments of God poured out onto an unbelieving world. And so we see seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, 
Seven visions, seven bowls, everything seems to come up as the number seven. Speaking of God's completeness and his control, even in the midst of a frightening spiritual warfare that takes us to the very end of the age, never fear for God is in control. And then finally, in chapters 17 to 19 is the destruction of the city of man, Babylon, and the rejoicing in heaven at its fall. And with that comes the latter part of the book, with the second coming of Christ, and finally the making of all things new, and Revelation, of course, ends with with the call for us to come and to be a part of that kingdom. So how shall we understand this amazing book? See, it seems clear to me that the book depicts events in the distant future, that is, events at the end of the age, whenever that shall be. But the book also depicts the struggle of God's people 2,000 years ago and can be applied to any age as well. As we see the church of Jesus Christ even today struggling with the forces of Satan and the command to be faithful unto death and so inherit the crown of life. See, Revelation gives us both the picture of what will happen at the end of the age and also an amazing spiritual depiction of the struggle that we're facing today. That's why Revelation is always relevant and always forces us to look to the very end of the age and clearly see that in the end, Christ comes back again, the heavens are departed, and all things are made new. Wow, (laughs) that's a lot of stuff, John. And I think that's one of the fears of all of us when we come to the book of Revelation that we're going to get confused. There's so much stuff to look at. Can you you sort of calm our fears a bit? I think I can, Ben. I, I think that Revelation is intended for the encouragement of believers at every age. There's so much in that book that, that you'll read and take to heart because you'll look at your own struggles that you're facing, and, and I know that some of our hearers are, are facing even persecution for their faith, and they can read these accounts and say, you know, our God is seated on his throne, and all things are turning out exactly as he intended. At the same time, Revelation can lead us to look towards the end of the age, which it should lead us to do. And in the end of the age, we see the glorious return of Christ. We see that Satan has his little season, but it is limited in scope and time, and that God wins in the end of the day. I think that's it. Thanks so much. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. This year has been one of the more challenging years of my lifetime, and I know it has been for many of you. That's why we felt it so important that all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada would continue uninterrupted. In fact, we would even add new Bible teaching video programming on YouTube. Your response has been overwhelming. Your prayers, encouragement, and support has sustained this ministry, and we can't thank you enough. As our fiscal year comes to a close, We'd ask you to continue to support. Our target is $325,000, but to help us get there, a group of ministry friends have provided a $75,000 matching gift pledge. That means every dollar you give is matched by another dollar up to $75,000. Thank you for your continued support. 
If you'd like more information or to send a gift towards the Match Campaign, simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.